Father, what a great, great reminder. Uh, Lord, when you act, who can reverse it? None of your purposes are thwarted. And Lord, thanks for uh, electing saving love that converts sinners like us into saints and sons and daughters. And salvation is of the Lord. We thank you for it, Lord. Thanks for our own new life in Christ. Thanks for the ways you use us to speak to others. And Lord, we long for the day that we are fully at rest in your presence in your house. And until then, ask that you would be pleased to magnify Christ in us and in the world around us in his name. Amen. I didn't know what Chris's uh, testimony would be like this morning um, and Saul. Chris knew what we'd be talking about, the character we'd be talking about. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So, uh, actually, we have quite a few elements very similar in our background, Roman Catholicism and a knowledge of God, and yet um, not a true knowledge, not a transforming knowledge of God. <clears throat> I've shared my story of conversion many times. I'm not going to share that this morning. I do want to start in John 3, um, thinking about conversion and new starts and new beginnings in God's work. Remember Nicodemus uh, was an esteemed Jewish leader in Jesus' day, and he comes up to Jesus at night. doesn't say why, but whether he was trying to hide or not, perhaps. But he comes up to Jesus, and he, he wants to engage in a conversation. And you know, we don't know what he wanted to talk about because he never got there. He starts to say, Jesus, we know you're a man of God, and Jesus cuts him off and says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see or he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nick is confused and he doesn't know what that means. What does that look like? And so Jesus doubles down. This is John 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, count on this unless there's a spiritual reformation, a spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And you know, the fall, our story, going back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, our first parents, have face-to-face relationship with the living and true God. But he tells them, if you disobey me, you're going to die. And they disobey and they die, and they die in the moment in that they, they're not free to have that fellowship. They're cut off from God, and they know it. They want to hide. It's been our status ever since. And they re- reproduce children after their own image. And in the language of the Bible, they're called fleshly or carnal. And we don't mean carne is in meat, flesh is in muscle, but we mean all they have is this spiritually fallen nature. And so when they reproduce, they reproduce themselves fallen creatures, still in the image of God, of course, but unable to have a relationship with God because all they are is fallen and sinful and at odds with their Maker. And that's been true, of course, for every generation and every person born ever since, except Jesus. True of every one of us. And unless there's this spiritual rebirth that Chris talked about, it's not just that you don't enter the kingdom of heaven You can't discern spiritual reality. You can't interact with the God who made you. You have no spiritual life. You're dead in trespass and sin unless and until there's that spiritual rebirth that John 3 talks about. The flesh produces the flesh. The Spirit produces the Spirit. 
We're in the Heroes and Villains series this morning again. This is the 26th message. And we're looking at a villain this morning. King Saul. Remember, heroes display some aspect of Christ-like faithfulness. And villains, the opposite. They're not faithful to their Maker. They're faithful to themselves. And guys, that's all of us before conversion. No matter how moral you were, no matter how ethical you are, no matter how religious you were or are, None of those things have anything to do with spiritual life or God if you're still in your trespass and sin. They're just another variation of rebellion. They're just another variation of sin and death in your life. Man is inherently religious, we know that, but none of that is the same as new birth through faith in Christ. What we find is Saul is both, he's a pathetic figure, and you'll see that if you've read, we're going to go very quickly through his life this morning. You know, it starts in 1 Samuel 9, goes right through to the end chapter 31, so you can't do justice to the life, but we want to see some of the milestones or the high points this morning. But he's a very pathetic figure. And he's a pathetic figure because he's not born again. He doesn't have a spiritual rebirth. And all of his life bears the hallmark that he's a man of the flesh and that's all he is, that's all he can do. And he's a cautionary tale to us too. In fact, let me get down to, hopefully you have a study sheet it says the main point there. The main point this morning, the takeaway is this. A faithfulness, and not just faithfulness in Jesus' style or after Jesus' likeness, but, but spiritual life, spiritual vitality, spiritual insight is only possible in those who've been born again through faith in Christ. And, <clears throat> and this, is, this is the deal for most of us. Born again sons and daughters of God who walk by the Spirit of God and place no confidence in the flesh can display the Christ-like faithfulness to which we're called and which pleases God. And friends, this is, this is conditional. This is conditional. A person who's not born again cannot interact with God, does not have spiritual life, and cannot please God. Romans 8.8, 8, passage Chris was in, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's an impossibility. When God's sons and daughters, though, walk after our old sinful selves, we cannot please God. We're living like the person we were before redemption instead of the person God's recreated us in Christ to be. And when we choose to live like the old person we were, we look just like Saul, as you'll see in this story. We can't please God. It's an impossibility. We'll start in 1 Samuel 9. And sorry, because I'm changing gears this morning. Let me, let me catch up. Remember last time we looked at Samuel? Samuel sort of closes out the period of the Judges, born about 1100 B.C. And he's the link between the period of the Judges and the period of the Kings. He anoints the first two of those Kings, Saul and then King David. King Saul, as you'll see, Acts 13.21 tells us he reigned for 40 years. That would put him from 1050 to 1010 B.C. when David becomes king. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And in Israel, that's sort of on the shoulder of the tribal area of Judah. It's a small place. It's significant in the period of the judges because of the, the sin that comes out of and the warfare that comes out of Benjamin's tribe and probably Saul's ancestors either father or grandfather something along uh, back there was part probably of the warfare uh, in the tribes of of Israel because of Benjamin the tribal 
uh, sin of Benjamin. So small, small part of the country just on the top of uh, Judah there. So Jesus talks about new birth and this will get us into Samuel's and Saul's story. This is 1 Samuel 9, 1. This is page 231 in, this, in the uh, Pew Bible. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He's the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia. He's a Benjamite and he's a man of wealth. So Benjamin's a small tribal area, but Saul's family is personally wealthy. He had a son whose name was Saul. He's a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So you got on the beginning here, Israel has told Samuel we want a king, and it's not for a good reason. We want a king, and so God says to Samuel, hey, we're, they're going to get a king. And Saul is going to be God's choice for a king. So when Saul is introduced to Samuel, you've got this strapping young guy that looks physically like a king. This is the kind of guy they thought they wanted. He's tall, he's rugged, he looks like a king, he's handsome. In Saul's story, and we're skipping through the narratives for time, when Saul and his servant leave their home to go find some lost donkeys, they wander and they end up a few days later in Samuel's town. And they don't know what to do. And Saul says, we really need to go home. My dad will be worried about me. And the servant says, well, the prophet, the seers in this town, why don't we go ask him about it? And God has already talked to Samuel and he told him this guy's going to show up tomorrow. Be ready for him. This is 1 Samuel 9, verse 19. Samuel answered Saul and said, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. In the morning I'll let you go, and I'll tell you all that's on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And he says this quizzical thing to Saul. He says, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? This is out of the blue to Saul. Saul's just looking for some donkeys. And Samuel the prophet says, you're the guy and your father's household, you're the ones who get all the good stuff in Israel. And, and this is preceding uh, Samuel's anointing him as the king. Saul has no idea what's going on. And, and listen to what he, he responds. He answered and said, am I not a Benjamite? I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel. I'm from this little inconspicuous tribal area. My clan is the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why have you spoken to me in this way? So Saul is physically handsome. He looks like a king. And when Samuel here talks to him about getting all the good stuff, Saul sounds humble and he's self-effacing. In fact, if you look at what he says here, it's just like Moses and Gideon when God told them, I'm going to use you. And so far, Saul sounds just like God's godly men from before, a judge and a deliverer. So far, everything looks golden. Before Saul leaves the city, secret, uh, Samuel secretly anoints him as king. He sends the servant ahead and he pours oil on Saul's head and says, you're the king. You're the next one. No one else knows it yet, but you know it. He also tells him that that he's, when he leaves Samuel, a number of things are going to happen to him. And when he leaves, this is 1 Samuel 10, verse 9 and 10, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him, gave Saul, another heart. And all the signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him 
And the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. This language sounds very promising and we don't want to read too much into it though. When the text says God gave Saul another heart and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, this is not conversion. And it's clear from the text it's not conversion. God gave Saul an attitude to be a leader. He changed heart. In the Hebrew, it's leb, and it can mean an attitude. It can mean your mind, your thoughts. It's a number of things. But God changes His outlook and His attitude so that He'll be willing to take up this role as leader and king. And then the Holy Spirit rushes on Him in that moment. He prophesies with the prophets so they know the Holy Spirit had come on Saul. And He came on Saul not only to prophesy in the moment, but to empower him to lead as king. Now you know later, and this is a theme that comes up for Christians oftentimes, especially because of Psalm 51. David prays after he sinned in Psalm 51 that God wouldn't take His Holy Spirit away from him. This is not a Christian psalm. David had seen God take the Holy Spirit away from Saul, which we'll see later in his story. So what God has done for Saul is He's given him an attitude to lead. He's given him the Holy Spirit to empower him to lead. But Saul remains a man of the flesh, as you'll see in his story. He's an unconverted man that's following God in the ways an unconverted man can. Empowered by God, a new attitude, but not a rebirth. Well, Samuel goes to Mizpah and he, he gathers the nation there. He says, we're going to choose your king. Now, the king's already chosen, but Israel doesn't know who it is. So they draw lots. And Benjamin's tribe is chosen. And then Saul's clan is chosen. And then Saul is chosen. And they're looking for him and he's nowhere to be found. And they ask God, where is he? And God tells them, well, he's hiding over there with the donkeys and the luggage. And again, it sounds self-effacing and it sounds humble, but it's not. And so, so far you got this. And in fact, listen to what they say. When he stood among the people, this is 1 Samuel 10.23, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. This is it. Here he is. This is the guy we wanted. So on the front end here of Saul's story, physically tall and handsome, he looks kingly, he appears humble, and he's the one God chose. So the nation knows God chose Saul for us. So there's this sense of confidence. Now in short order, we're not getting into the story. In short order, people go back to their homes. Saul goes back, he's plowing the field, but he hears word that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, has attacked Jabesh-Gilead, a city across the Jordan River Valley. And they're asking people for help. And Saul cuts up his ox and he sends pieces of his ox through the nation. And he says, guys, gather to me or this is what we do to your oxen. And Israel forms an army behind Saul and they go and they squash the Ammonites. And Saul has this really humble response. And everything looks good. So from the start, everything looks good. And he's the military leader the nation wanted. He's gone out. He's suppressed the animus against Jabesh Gilead. So far, things look good. Everything looks golden. It simply doesn't last long. And this is the thing. God gave the nation the kind of king they wanted but not the king they needed. He gave them what they wanted. Guys, this is not always a good thing. And one of just the points of application for us is to be very careful about what we ask from God, 
what we demand from God. God, I must have this person as a spouse or I must have this kind of this person as a political leader or I must have this employer or I must have this or I must have that. The worst thing sometimes God can do for us is to give us what we want. And He gave Israel what they wanted, but this was not the man they needed. And guys, there's all kinds of uh, types included in this story in which through Saul and through King David we're meant to see man's version of a Savior that is ultimately the person of the Antichrist and God's version of a Savior. And you see images of this in Saul and in David. And then that looms larger at the end of the time. Antichrist appears and people will say, this is our guy before Jesus comes. The world will get the leader they want, but not the leader they need. That's exactly what's gone on for Israel. God has given them the kind of leader they want. Uh, We need to be careful also. There's two points for this for me. Be careful what we ask for. Be careful what we ask for. And also be careful about initial inspection and consideration about a person or a work or a thing. They've seen Saul for a short period of time and Saul looks golden, but it's because his sins simply haven't had time to rise yet. And they will. 1 Timothy 5.24 and 25 says this, The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You know, Scripture tells churches not to lay hands on any too quickly because first impressions can be misleading. Short-term impressions can be misleading, as is the case with Saul. So we want to be careful about that for ourselves. Now, some time goes by, and Saul recruits a standing army. Israel didn't normally have a standing army. He recruits a standing army, and his son Jonathan defeats the Philistines. And the Philistines respond by raising their own army, lots of chariots, lots of soldiers. They're going to attack Israel. This is 1 Samuel 13. It's not clear from the story what conversation this occurred in, but Saul knows Samuel has promised to come and make an offering to ask God to bless their military efforts against the Philistines. And so Saul has waited. And this is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 13, 9-14. So Samuel hasn't come, and he was supposed to have. And Saul's soldiers are running away because the Philistines are forming up against them and there's no blessing and they haven't organized and and they don't want to be caught short in this. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And Saul offered the burnt offerings. Now this is absolutely in contradiction to God's Word. Benjamites don't make offerings to God. He's not a priest. It's not his prerogative to do this as king. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And I'm sure there's a tone in the voice. Saul suddenly knows, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good. What have you done? Saul says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you didn't come. Now notice, this language is remarkably like Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve are confronted with their sin, we pass the baton, we pass the buck, we shift blame. Saul says, you didn't come when you were supposed to. When you didn't come within the days appointed, the Philistines had mustered at Michmash 
And I said, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, isn't that nice, and offered the burnt offering. So he says, you know what? I wasn't willing to face them without God's blessing, so I broke God's Word to get God's blessing. So he would bless us in this military effort. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man for His own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul couches his disobedience in this spiritual language. And I'm sure none of us have ever done that before. It's sort of this blame-shifting game. But the deal was, he was really disobedient, and it was a disobedient spirit because he's a man of the flesh that will get reproduced time after time after time. It's the rest of the story of his life in 1 Samuel. Saul's a carnal man, and though God gave him a heart to lead, a new attitude, God empowered him by His Spirit, he remains a carnal man. He's born after the flesh only. Now listen to these verses from Romans 8. Chris in his testimony shared an upside from Romans 8, which is a great chapter, but listen to the downsides that are mentioned in Romans 8 about people who live according to the flesh. That is, it's our old sinful self that's the only spiritual vitality we're bringing to bear in life. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Saul's a man of the flesh. His thoughts can't go high enough to God and God's things. To set the mind on the flesh is death when you and i live according to the flesh and our fleshly thoughts all we get are elements of death verse 7 the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god it does not submit to god's law and indeed it can't those who are in the flesh cannot please god now you need to think about this and take this home a person in the flesh cannot please god religious, moral, ethical, you're going to church. None of those things please God if I'm not born again. My flesh cannot please God. It's an impossibility. And all Saul has is the life of the flesh. So after this, Saul makes one foolish vow after another. And guys, I'm hop, skipping, and jumping. You've got the references for what I'm going over on your study sheet. I'm not going to mention them here, but I'll simply go over points of the story. Saul curses anyone who would stop to eat on a day of battle. Suddenly, uh, Jonathan and the crew, they're pursuing the Philistines in this battle. Jonathan sees honey in the woods and he takes some and he eats. And the guys tell him, oh, your dad made a vow. He said, cursed is any man who eats before this day is over and I've got my revenge on the Philistines. Jonathan knew nothing about it. Saul made a foolish vow. He then vows to kill his son Jonathan because Jonathan broke the vow. His people, his friends, uh, get Saul not to do that. He then follows God's command to destroy the Amalekites. God says, you know, it's been on my mind for a while. The Amalekites opposed Israel when you came up from Egypt. I want you to go down. And the language is very clear. You're to wipe them out entirely. Just like the city of Jericho, the Amalekites are under the ban. No life is to be preserved. No human life, no animal life. Everything's gone. What Saul does, though, with the army is he goes down and he does the same thing that the villain Achan did at the city of Jericho. He and the army, they destroy whatever people or things they don't want. 
they keep the best of the things for themselves. They didn't obey God. They didn't do what he had said. Saul felt so good about this military victory that he set up a monument not to Yahweh, but to himself. And after this, Samuel comes on the scene. And Samuel confronts him. This is the well-known passage in 1 Samuel 15. And Saul complains, I obeyed the Lord. Then he blames the people. He blame shifts again. And Samuel calls Saul's actions rebellion and presumption and tells Saul similar words that God has spoken to the high priest Eli. He says God has rejected you as king and he's going to replace you with someone who is worthier than you. And then this is telling 1 Samuel 16.14 the Holy Spirit that God gave Saul to lead Israel leaves King Saul. God takes his spirit off Saul. This is David's reference in, in Psalm 51. And God sends an evil spirit to trouble Saul, the man after the flesh. And guys, from here, it's just a downhill run on Saul's life. Once David comes on the scene and slays Goliath, and David becomes part of Saul's entourage, Saul tries time after time to kill David. So twice he throws spears at him. He puts him in dangerous spots with the military, hoping the Philistines will kill David. Uh, he tries to have his son Jonathan and his servants kill David. He hopes to kill David before he can get out of bed in the morning. He pursues David until David flees. This is in chapter 21. And that begins the phase of Saul's life and David's life where you've got all the stories of Saul pursuing David. It's right from chapter 21 to chapter 31. If you read Galatians 4.29, it says Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Ishmael, the man born after the flesh, the will of man, if you remember the story, we're not going back into all that, persecutes Isaac, the son that was born of the promise. It was the flesh versus the spirit. And that's the same thing that goes on here. Saul, the man of the flesh, is persecuting David, the man after the spirit. And then Saul's descent into corruption. Guys, he really loses his mind. By the way, this is an old uh, asylum building you see on the overhead he curses his own son jonathan because jonathan's not in on the plan to kill david he doesn't think that's a good idea he then tries to kill jonathan with a spear just like he had david at the same time hoping jonathan becomes the next heir in saul's dynasty does that make sense he curses his son he says you're to be the next heir to set up saul's dynasty and then he tries to kill him He's lost his mind. He's lost rationality. Saul has the priests of Nob. And, and uh, yeah, the Scripture says the deeds of the flesh are obvious. We'll look at a few of those passages as we wind down this morning. When God sent Saul to wipe out God's enemies in toto, in their totality, he doesn't do it. He spares all kinds of lives. But Saul requires that all of the priests that reside at the city of Nob that all the priests and all their wives and all their children and all their livestock are all slain because he thinks they've helped David flee. What Saul wouldn't do to God's enemies, he does to God's friends and priests. Saul is absolutely a man after the flesh. And then he pursues witchcraft to find out what do I do? Philistines are coming. This is at the end of his life, of course. And then just like Judas who betrayed Jesus, 
Saul is not slain by the Philistines in battle. Saul commits suicide by falling on his own sword. That's the, the end of his life. Saul's a man after the flesh. It looked promising initially, but it wasn't. Saul can't display Christ-like faithfulness because it's not possible for the flesh to produce spiritual life and vitality. Your study sheet lists 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. Had conversations in home group in which someone will say, why doesn't so-and-so see this? It's because it's spiritually discerned and they are spiritually dead. They have no spiritual life. They can't see it. You can hold the truth up to them all day long. They don't have the ability to recognize the truth. It says he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The first order of business for anyone who would please God is to agree with God in the Gospel. And is to agree that my heart is desperately wicked and I bring nothing but my sinful self to God. I can't please God. And the only thing that pleases God for the unsaved, is repentance and faith in Christ. Until that rebirth occurs, Chris mentioned in his own life, I know most of us have experienced that same moment of change in which God quickened us. We heard about Christ. There's faith. There's regeneration. There's new life. Until that happens, it's an impossibility for a person to know God, to interact with God meaningfully, or to please God. There has to be a spiritual rebirth. Guys, beyond that, and for most of us, this is where the rubber meets the road. Even if you're born again, you have the Spirit of God, you have a new nature, you have God's Word, when you and I choose to live after the manner of our old sinful self, we cannot please God in that either. In other words, when we choose to live in the flesh, we don't have to. When we choose to live in the flesh, we look just like Saul. We're double-minded. Our obedience is halfway There's just numerous ways we may sort of halfway cover up our sin, but if we choose to walk in the flesh, we're just like Saul. That flesh can never please God. How do I know if it's the old sinful me, the Saul me I'm living in? All I have to do is check the fruit. By the way, Kathy, my wife, when she talks to gals about these elements of spiritual life, she encourages them to name their old sinful self. I think one of her friends is Edith. That is, it's a way to objectify that that's the old me, that's not the new me, that's not the real me. You could call your old sinful self if you're a guy, or perhaps not Saul. That's the Saul me. That's not the new me. That's not the real me. But it's a way to objectify it. And and Paul does that in the language of Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7 when he says, my old man, this is what I like to do. I sin. It's not what the new me wants. I rejoice with God in the inner man, but the old man, that old life that was part of me that died with Christ, says Romans 6. That's what I'm walking in. When we're doing that, we're just like Saul. And guys, you know, if you've spent any time as a Christian, this is a dogfight. It's ugly. It's hard. Temptations never go away. That old sinful me, in fact, in the language of 2 Corinthians, it just corrupts more fully over time. You know, you meet a Christian who's walked with the Lord 40 or 50 years, they're probably more keenly aware of their sinfulness than when they got saved. And the old them is more sinful than the day they got saved. That old nature, it just corrupts over time. This would be one of the key things about hell. 
if God leaves us to ourselves, we just become more fully this thing, this, this kind of existent life that's deficient, and it never gets better. It can only get worse. And that's true for your old sinful nature and mine as well. And when we choose to live in that, we look just like Saul. We don't please God. We don't understand the things of God. It's a mess. Saul was double-minded and he was half-hearted in obedience. Those are two good places to start. Sort of qualifying, am I walking in the Spirit or in the flesh? And then look on your study sheet, you've got uh, a number of lines there from 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. And they mention, what what does Saul life look like? What does fleshly life look like? Those lists you'll see, sexual immorality always comes up in a multitude of ways. Uncleanness, unfaithful. Other categories that come up are sort of divisive spirits. There's dissension, there's um, divisiveness, party spirit. Uh, Things come up like greed and envy and theft and lying, but they tend to run in categories. It's pretty easy for me to see if I'm walking in my new Christ-like life or if I'm walking out that old Saul-like fleshly life by just going through the list. I've mentioned before, but as a new believer, anger was my issue and most people thought I was a really nice guy until they realized I wasn't. And There were just situations in which my anger would just erupt. And as a new believer, I read Galatians 5 and I realized that's me. And God's telling me that's your old sinful self. You're not free to do this. You're not free to walk this way. You can't justify that kind of anger much as I wanted to. I was nailed, which was a good thing. It's like, Mike, put that off. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. It says it this way in Matthew 16, 24, thinking of Jesus' words, uh, some of the ways we sin. Jesus' words in uh, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. If you save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you find it. There's that sense in which losing our life is putting off the old sinful self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said it this way, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. The beauty of that though is that death to what I was is life in the new. It's that I quit living like Saul and I begin living like David. It means I put off faithlessness to my Creator and I put on faithfulness like Christ. And guys, then I can please my Father all day, every day. And and I would just say, I don't want to understate this. For Christians who are born again and have that new nature and we're, we're going to heaven, that's all grand. But the place where we struggle is the temptations to live out the old life. And this is a lifelong struggle. And guys, it doesn't get any easier. Whether it's sinful words, sinful attitudes, lustful thoughts, greed, and none of it gets easier. In fact, I think in my own life, I would say it's gotten harder I see my sin as it is more fully sinful, and yet the temptations are still there, and it's a challenge, and it's a dogfight. Somebody asked Harry Ironside, what do you do in this sort of the battle of the flesh and the spirit? And he said, well, it is like a dogfight, and the dog you feed wins. The dog you feed wins. So if I continue to give in to temptation, I'm feeding that old sinful self. If I'm in the Scriptures, if I'm pleading with God, and guys... You know, Lord, help me. I don't want to fall again. God, give me your spirit. Interrupt 
interrupt my process. Help, help me avoid that old Saul-like life. We need all the help we can get. Philippians 3, describing the new life, says we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And that's, that's the way we want to live. Saul is a picture, he's a paradigm of the man or the woman of the fleshly life only. No rebirth, no ability to please God whatsoever. We're born again through faith in Jesus and we choose day by day to put the deeds of the flesh to death, take up our cross, and follow Christ. And then what you find is you get life and it's really, really good. Well, why don't you stand with me? We're going to read from Romans 8 together. The worship team will come up and and we'll worship... uh, and glory in Christ Jesus together. Let's read this, Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God.